The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, we are going to spend the next four weeks, or actually the whole month of December, talking about the birth of Christ, the meaning of Christ, the true meaning of Christmas, uh, through the Scriptures together, looking forward to a great time of corporate worship together, thinking about the true meaning of our Lord's birth. And we'll begin that today. We can uh, turn to our Bibles now. And if you want to follow the handout there as we talk about and introduce the theme of Christmas and the true meaning of Christmas, if you'll notice that the handout you have, I just put the need for Christmas. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. Uh, I was thinking about how I grew up. I didn't grow up in a Bible-believing home. So for pretty much 18-plus years, I was ignorant of what was in the Bible. Culturally, I knew stuff about the Bible. I had heard some stories, but never read the Bible, studied the Bible, was formally taught Scripture. Uh, But growing up at the same time, I knew about Christmas. I loved Christmas. So as an unbeliever for 19 years, favorite holiday of the year, not just because of the presents and the decor and all that came with it. I even knew that you know Christmas meant the birth of Christ. And to in a very ignorant kind of way, I I knew that's what Christmas was about, but I didn't really understand the significance of Jesus' birth growing up because I didn't have any biblical teaching on it. But I knew it did have something to do with this Jesus person and His birth. And so today I wanted to really accentuate the true meaning of Christmas and even the need for Christmas and why do we even have it? Why do we celebrate it? Why did that historic event happen? How does that fit into God's plan for His people for all of humanity. So that's what I wanted to address today, just the need for Christmas. There is a desperate need for Christmas. Christmas has got Jesus' name in it, by the way, Christ, right? A lot of people forget that, Christ. So Christmas is all about Christ. Christmas is all about Jesus, who He is and what He did. And if you want to find out the details of that, then you've got to go to Scripture. You can't have Christmas without Scripture, right? Otherwise, you're just talking about this ethereal, undefined uh, spirit of Christmas that I didn't know really what that meant for 18 years because I wasn't looking to be informed by Scripture as to the meaning of Christmas. So today we're going to be informed by Scripture as to the need of Christmas and what Jesus has to do with Christmas. And it will be a revelation, especially for those who don't know Scripture or the Bible. Like I said, a lot of people say, Happy Christmas, Merry Christmas, and don't even think of the word Christ in the word Christmas. And more and more in our culture, Jesus is being smothered and squeezed out of the season, right? Going shopping these days now, it's pretty much happy holidays, happy holidays. And some employees aren't even allowed to say Merry Christmas by their employer, uh, which is sad. So it's been, you know, and that's been going on for decades now, squeezing Jesus out of Christmas. And one of the most recent ones that has hit our culture that was in the news over Thanksgiving was a city in California, I think it was Southern California, where for the last 50 years in this well-known city, you'd know it, um, for the last 50 years in the local community at a large public park, uh, people in the community every Christmas season after Thanksgiving would put out a very large nativity scene in the park. And it's been going on for five-plus decades. As a reminder, up until Christmas, that reminding the entire city that Christmas is about Jesus and Christ and the nativity scene. And the last couple of years in that Southern California city, some 
just a few, doesn't take many, cantankerous atheists, or I don't know, whatever they are, Christ haters, Christian haters, uh, started putting up atheistic uh, signs and statues and everything else next to the nativity scene in the public park. So this feud's been going on apparently for a couple of years, and then finally it went to court, and the judge just ruled, and we heard about it over Thanksgiving, that uh, nobody can put any religious relics whatsoever in the park. And so <laughs> that's how they solved the problem. So Christmas is banned from the public park in this city here in California. Uh, just one more of many examples that continues to go on of smothering out, pushing aside Jesus out of our culture, out of the public square. And, you know, we banned prayer in public schools in the 60s and it's just gone downhill ever since. So that's no surprise from the world point of view that Jesus is being snuffed out left and right all over the place. So we have a wonderful privilege as the church all over the world to proclaim it and proclaim it loudly of the meaning of Christmas, the glory of Christmas. Like Charlie Brown. Remember when Charlie Brown proclaiming at the top of his lungs, screaming it out, what Christmas is all about. Powerful, powerful biblical cartoon. But anyway, uh, so that's what we want to do this Christmas season is just shout it out. The true meaning of Christmas. And in our series, the first thing I thought we needed to be reminded of is, well, there is a need for Christmas. And I want to show what that need is from Scripture. So I just came up with five points that I want to remind us of from the Bible showing us humanity's need for Christmas. Let's go ahead and look there. Uh, And God in His grace promised the coming of Christ in the Old Testament in light of the fivefold plight of humanity. And humanity as a whole needs Christmas because Christmas has to do with Jesus. Jesus is good news. Humanity needs good news because there's bad news out there. So these five points actually are bad news. But we need to hear about the bad news because they're in the Bible. And they accentuate the good news and actually give meaning to the good news. So we're going to look at the bad news, followed up by God's solution with the good news. And the good news is all wrapped up in this person, Jesus Christ. So let's go ahead to the very beginning. And point number one, the need for Christmas is because of the fall and its moral degeneration. And I want to go back to the very beginning. If you have a Bible and you wanted to look in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk about how God created everything in the beginning. It is true history. It really happened that way. If you just read Genesis 1 and 2 at face value and you believed it, you would be accurate in doing so. Because God was the only eyewitness of creation and this is what He told us about how it happened. It happened in seven days. Actually, He rested on the seventh day, meaning He ceased His creative activity on day seven. He created everything in the universe and the earth in six days. In the very beginning, including the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And according to Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, after God had created everything that He created in the beginning... God made an assessment. He looked at His creation and this is what He said. God saw all that He had made and behold, and behold, get this, that is emphatic. This is a declaration from the Almighty Eternal Creator God on high. Behold! This is God's decree and pronouncement and assessment of His creation in the very beginning. Verse 31, And behold, God said, it was very good. That's highly significant. It was very good in the beginning. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So in the beginning, very good. What that means is is that at this time when God created the world in the very beginning, there was no sin. There was no rebellion. There was no fallen, defiant Satan to plague humanity 
with his evil devices. You could say the world was perfect. Even the physical world was perfect. There weren't tragedies going on. There weren't floods and all that other stuff. And the human race was perfect, or at least at that time, they were without sin, Adam and Eve. So that's what God meant. It was very good. And then something happened. Uh, God talked to Adam and Eve. First, He talked to Adam and said, and gave Adam orders about how he was to conduct himself and how he was to live and how he was to relate with God, his Creator. And Adam understood, and Adam was not yet a sinner. And God said, you've got all this freedom and all these blessings and all this liberty, and here's the trees you can eat from, but don't eat from this one. And if you eat from this one in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And death in the Bible means separation from God. Separation physically, spiritually, and eternally. And so God was saying, if you disobey me, Adam, and you eat from this tree, the forbidden one, uh, you will incur the punishment of Almighty God, the Creator, because of your sin, and that is death in all three forms. And so that's what God made very clear in chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis. And then uh, God created Eve and performed the first marriage for Adam and Eve. And then we come into, let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 3. So Adam and Eve, they are married, the only two people on earth. They are without sin. They are perfect at this time. And then verse three, chapter 3, verse 1 says this in Genesis 3. Now the serpent, this is a snake, one of the creatures that God had created. Uh, the serpent was more crafty uh, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made among all of God's creatures. And he said to the woman, so you got this snake talking, and we know from the New Testament that Satan had fallen at some point between chapter 2 and 3. Satan was evil. He's a fallen angel. God allowed him to do this sinful deed, and Satan somehow inhabited or indwelt this snake. And so you literally have a snake that is talking that is demon-possessed. And Satan is going to use the disguise of a snake to deceive the first two people, Adam and Eve, and bring about sin into the world. So... Now the serpent was more... So that's the animal. And then it says, He said at the middle of the verse, that is Satan talking through the snake according to Revelation 12, John 8, and other passages, Romans 16. So really, Satan said through the snake to the woman Eve, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden. So Satan's being subtle here, trying to trick and deceive Eve. And he's going to be successful. Verse 2, The woman Eve said to the serpent, to the snake, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And then the serpent, or Satan inside the serpent, said to the woman, you surely will not die. So Satan is a liar. He's a deceiver and a liar. Verse 5, uh, for, And even though Eve was without sin, she wasn't perfected yet. She didn't have a resurrection body. She was vulnerable. Even though she wasn't sinful, she was vulnerable. So was Adam. And here's her vulnerability. She was vulnerable to temptation. Verse 5, For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw and so she falls for the temptation. As a weak, unresurrected, unperfected, eternally speaking, glorified human being. Verse 6, When the woman Eve saw that the tree was good for food, see, she was tempted by what she saw, and that it was, or uh, by her appetites, and that it was a delight to the eyes. She was tempted by what she saw, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's pride. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. All three kicked in. 
She took from its fruit and she ate it. So she sinned, she disobeyed. Now she has incurred the wrath of God and the consequences of death. And humanity would never be the same again. Now things are no longer very good, as it said in Genesis 1.31. She took from it and she ate, she disobeyed, and she gave also to her husband and he ate and he willingly, deliberately disobeyed God, violated the commandment that God had given him. Adam knew the consequence and here he incurs spiritual death and separation by disobedience to God and he ate. So immediately, boom, based on this one act of disobedience, uh, the whole world is plummeted into sin and degeneration. This is called the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve. The first act of sin that brought sin into this world and has perpetuated and propagated sin through the ages for 6,000 years, even down to us from Adam and Eve and their disobedience. That's the, the degeneration. has been passed on. Uh, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. That means they all of a sudden they became aware of their sinfulness for the first time because this is the first time they had sinfulness. And they knew guilt is kicking in, that they were naked, so they tried to hide from God. That's guilt by sowing fig leaves on themselves, trying to hide from God. Verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. They're running from God, and sinners have been doing that ever since then for the last 6,000 years. Sinners, by nature, run from a holy God. And that's what they did. Hiding themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid fear. For the first time in their life, Adam and Eve are experiencing fear. Fear is a result and directly related to sin. So all this stuff they never experienced before. Guilt, shame, fear. All byproducts of disobedience and sin and fallenness. I was afraid of you, God. That's not God's ideal. That's not God's intent. That's not God's design. He doesn't want us to be afraid of Him. He wants us to know Him and to love Him intimately, right? That is His design. That is His desire. That's what He wants. He wants a repaired, intimate, deep, and perfect relationship with humanity. And that's going to be an ongoing part of His plan. And God said, who told you that you were naked? And so, as a result, you've got Adam and Eve who have been plunged into sin. And as a result, they have passed sin on through their very loins to every human being that has ever been born since then, including every single one of us, has inherited a sin nature from Adam and Eve. And that is confirmed in the New Testament. And I want to read Romans chapter 5. The whole chapter of 5 is really a commentary by the Apostle Paul as he's moved along and inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a commentary on Genesis 3 and the implications of sinfulness in the fall. Kind of an inspired theological commentary of the significance of Adam's first disobedience and God's solution, which would be the second Adam, Jesus Christ, and how he overcomes Adam's disobedience and its consequences. But in Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as through one man, Adam, just as through one man, sin entered into the world. How did sin enter into this world? It entered through the disobedience of Adam. That's why you have to believe that Adam was a real person. That answers the question, why is there sin in the world? Why am I a sinner? How did sin get here? It came through this man, Adam. Sin entered the world through Adam. And death through sin. Why is there death today? Why are there tragedies all over the world all the time? Why do people die? Death is the consequence of sin. Because God decreed that. God clearly says that in Scripture. The wages of sin is death. That's Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. In the moment you eat from that, you shall surely die. And over and over and over again, God says the wages of sin 
is death. Bad news. And then God gives the goodness, the solution through Jesus Christ and His Gospel. But through the disobedience of Adam, sin entered the world to everybody. It spread to everybody. And as a result, death entered in as a result. And death spread to all men, says the end of verse 12. And so death spread to all humanity because all sinned in Adam. So if you're sitting here today, according to the Bible, you are a sinner, I am a sinner. And as a matter of fact, if you keep reading through Genesis, but we don't have time, not only did sin enter the world through Adam, but sin began to grow and perpetuate and compound. And that's why I said degenerate, because humanity just gets worse and worse and worse. Think about it. The first sin was what? Just simply eating something they shouldn't have eat. Have you ever done that? I do that probably once a week in the kitchen, the cookies I'm not supposed to eat. But anyway, that's the first sin. Just eating. And then you keep reading Genesis and then the sins become more horrific. Wow, all of a sudden, the next chapter, you've got anger. At first, actually, it's Cain who was jealous of his brother. Then he's angry with his brother. And then you have murder as a result. Then you go to the next chapter and then all of a sudden you've got polygamy and sexual immorality. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. This proliferation and exponential degeneration of the plague, of the disease of sin on humanity until you reach a climax in the book of Judges. And that is the most horrific piece of literature in the history of the world. The book of Judges. Which is just an absolute vivid illustration of how bad sin can become in a fallen world. So that's uh, why we need Christmas. Because of this reality of sin and how it entered the world and it spread to all of us. Like it said in Romans 5.12, every single one of us is culpable, we are infected with sin, we are conceived in sin, we are born in sin, and as a result we are born separated from God, we are an enemy of God, we are children of wrath, we are destined for death and hell. That is all bad news. And this is all the result of sin. And that's why when Jesus came into the world, He said He came to seek and save sinners from this bad news. And one of the main things Jesus came to save people from was from their own sinfulness. That's the meaning of Christmas. Why do we need Christmas? Why do we need Jesus? Because I need to be saved from my sin first and foremost. That is basic to the Christmas message. That's why if you've got your Bible handy and you look at Matthew 1 where it talks about the birth of Christ, another Christmas story. Um, and Actually, in Luke chapter 2, it announces the birth of Christ and then the shepherds get to witness the birth of Christ and the angels tell the shepherds, A Savior has been born. A Savior. We need to be saved. We need Christmas. And one of the things we need to be saved from is our own sin, which takes me now to Matthew chapter 1. I just want to read that verse. In the birth account of Matthew, starting at verse 17, Matthew knew Jesus, eyewitness of Jesus, trained by Jesus for three plus years. Uh, And Matthew writes, actually verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph before they came together and got married, before they came together physically and with intimacy, she was already found to be with child or pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Supernatural work. No human man caused her to be pregnant. God supernaturally invaded her womb from on high. Jesus, the Creator of the universe, came down and somehow went inside Mary's tummy. Amazing. That's the virgin birth. Verse 19, And Joseph, 
her husband being a righteous man, he thought, whoa, he found out Mary got pregnant. He's like, that wasn't me. She must have committed adultery. But he loved Mary and he felt sorry for her. Everybody sins. Everybody messes up. Wow, how can I protect her and save her? Because she could be stoned to death. So Joseph loves her. He's trying to care for her, recognizing her, what he thought was a sin, but she didn't sin. He was in ignorance. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, get her out of town. Uh, but when he had considered this, behold, behold, an angel of the Lord from heaven appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She's pure. She's innocent. She didn't sin. She did not commit adultery. She doesn't deserve the death penalty. She is righteous. She is holy. She's one of mine. She's in my plan. Don't do what you're thinking in your mind to do by sending her away. That's what the angel was saying. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is from God. It is from the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural miracle. We call it the virgin birth. She will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. means God saves. That's what Jesus means. God saves. God is Savior. And this is what He will do. For He, Jesus, will save His people from their sins. Isn't that glorious? The bad news of that sin and degeneration and the consequences of sin and death and Jesus and God have a specific plan to come in and rescue sinners from their own sin. That is the main meaning of Christmas. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners from their own sin. So why do we need Christmas? We need Christmas so that we have a Savior to save us from our own sin. And it's degeneration. Let's go on to number two. Why else do we need Christmas? Aside from we need to be saved from our personal sin. Number two, uh, the cursed earth's global devastation. In other words, we need a Savior. We need Christmas because we need a Savior. We need a Savior to save us from the curse. So Jesus wants to save sinners from their own personal sin. But part of Jesus' rescue mission is saving all of humanity and literally the physical creation from the curse. I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 3 because we didn't read this verse. When Adam and Eve committed sin and disobedience, God punished Adam and Eve in several different ways. One of the punishments that God would punish Adam and Eve is that they would remain sinners and they'd have a sinful nature and that they would pass on their sin nature to all of their descendants. And all of humanity would be infected with sin, save Jesus Christ, who never had any sin when He was born. But God gave other consequences to Adam and Eve and everybody that was involved in the sin and disobedience. And look at verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. God punishes every party that was involved in the first sin. Uh, the physical snake was punished. God gave consequences to the physical snake. Said from now on, because of your part in the sin, you will crawl and slither on your belly. So apparently the snake either had legs prior to this, or it had wings, scary prospect, but it was cursed. Then Satan inside of the snake was also cursed by God. Very specifically in verse second part of fourteen and fifteen. Then the woman was cursed by God, pain in childbirth, and arguing and dissension with her husband in marriage. And then verse 17, here's the consequence given to Adam the man, the head of the family. 
because of your sin in the middle of verse 17. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. Literally, cursed is the earth because of you. So God cursed the entire earth. Everything about the literal, physical earth, which includes the solar system. The entire physical universe was cursed right here. And as a result, this is why we have earthquakes and floods and horrific storms and anything, uh, volcanoes, anything you could think of. Anything that has to do with natural devastations, that uh, plagues, famine. He even goes on to specify as a result, you're going to have weeds now, thorns and thistles as a result. That would be, so the cursed physical earth is an ongoing universal reminder to humanity that somebody botched it and blew it somewhere and we need a savior because this world in which we live is cursed. The literal physical world in many ways is our enemy. That's what he says. Cursed is the ground because of you. Toil, you're going to eat for the earth is not your friend. It's your enemy. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it's going to grow for you. Verse 19, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread from the ground. The ground is your enemy. Uh, go to Genesis chapter 5 if you've got your Bible. So this is the bad news. But there's good news as a solution to the bad news. Uh, God introduced, He goes through this genealogy and then He introduces Noah. Noah's got a wonderful name. It has to do with God rescuing sinners again. Uh, 29, uh, Genesis 5.29 Now He called His name Noah. This is Lam- Noah's dad. Saying, this one, Noah, will give us rest from our work. See, rest from our work. Rest from sin. And from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, here it is, which the Lord had cursed. So God cursed the earth. Why do we have this huge, massive, devastating killer storm over in the east coast of New York? That's the result of the curse, really. It has nothing to do with global warming. It has, not, it has to do with the curse. And you know, other things play into that of why it happened. And it came as a result of the byproduct of a curse God put on the earth 6,000 years ago. Uh, one more passage I want you to look at, and that's Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter, Romans chapter 8 is actually a commentary on the idea of a curse from Genesis 3. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. And most of Romans chapter 8 is looking to the future regarding the good news and the solution to this problem of sin that came through Adam, that brought death and devastation and even a curse on planet Earth. But the story doesn't end there because Jesus is a Savior. He has come. And He's come not only to save sinners of their individual personal sin. Jesus Christ has actually come for a cosmic reality and that is to save the entire earth and one day will remove the curse. That's what it says. Isaiah says that at the end of the book. That when the Messiah comes in His glory, the curse will be removed. Amazing. The book of Revelation says the same thing. And at some point, there's literally going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Absolute, perfect universe. Perfect nature. And this is all a part of God's plan and Christ's work as the Savior. And His death and resurrection enable this to happen. So look at verse 18 in Romans chapter 8. For I consider Paul saying, I consider that the sufferings of this present time, Paul admitted that life was hard. Is life hard? Can I get an amen? Amen. Maybe you had a hard week this week. Well, welcome to reality. Welcome to planet earth. The cursed planet earth. And Paul, he was a realist. I consider the sufferings of this present time, and Paul had a lot of hardships and suffering in life. 
But he had a biblical perspective in dealing with sufferings. And so he's trying to encourage us here. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, no matter what they are, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us as Christians. Isn't that awesome? If you're getting overwhelmed and swamped and drowning in all of your sufferings, sorrows, and problems, then you need to think on heavenly things, right? And get the eternal perspective to rescue your thinking. Give you hope. Put your hope in Christ, who is Savior. And that's what Paul says. Man, the glory, all these piddly trials we have right now, they're momentary, they're light, uh, they pass. That's not the end of the story. We've got eternal glories forthcoming for you, for me, as a child of the King. Jesus the Savior. And he goes on verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation wakes eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the anxious longing of the creation. So Paul's saying, not only human beings have to endure hardships, creation itself is having to endure hardships because of the cursed earth. The earth itself is longing to be redeemed, liberated, and saved from this curse that came in Genesis chapter 3. The anxious longing of the creation waiting in the future for the revealing of the sons of God in glory. Verse 20, for the creation, here it is, the creation was subjected to futility. What that means? The creation was subjected to a curse from God. That's why you have volcanoes and earthquakes and whatever tragedy you want to put under there. God did that. Who cursed the earth? God cursed the earth. Satan did not curse the earth. God did. A holy God as a consequence of sin. But Paul's saying there's a day where the curse is going to be removed. Glory will come. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because Him, God, of Him who subjected it and get it, He did it in hope. In other words, this is temporary in God's plan. This curse is not going to last. This curse is minimal compared to eternity in God's future glorious plans for His people. In hope, verse 21, in order that the creation itself also will be set free from it's slavery to the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So everything he's talking about is the curse. Verse 22, For you know that the whole creation groans. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now, until waiting to be liberated. All of creation. Can't help but think of my puppy dog and other puppy dogs that I had who grew up and then they get old and turn 10 and 13 and then all of a sudden their hips get uh, arthritis and whatever else and they walk around in pain. And you feel sorry for him? That's the curse. It is, literally. That's the curse. So all of creation is looking to be liberated from this. And the good news is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ, because of His perfect life, because He was the God-man, because of His willing substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, where He absorbed the wrath of Almighty God, raised Himself from the dead, ascended on high, reigns as High Priest, King of Kings, right now, rules over the world and the universe as the Lord of all, has an eternal plan that is glorious for His people and those who would believe in Him. And part of that glorious plan is He's going to relieve this physical earth of the curse. Is that not good news? Absolutely. And so He hints at that in, if you go a few more verses down to verse 31, for what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us as believers? Good news is coming. Glory is coming. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will God not also with Him freely give us all things. One of which is relief from the physical earth that brings drudgery, trials, suffering to this current life. Why do we need Christmas? Because we need the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our personal sin and to save us from the curse. And I want to be saved 
from that. Let's go on to point number three. Why else do we need Christmas? We need Christmas because we need a Savior to save us from the devil. Satan is real. Point number three. We need to be saved from the devil's spiritual deception. We need to be saved from the devil. We already read Genesis chapter 3. How Satan came down. So Satan was created as an angel, a good angel. And he had a will. The ability to make choices and decisions. And he was also vulnerable, although created without sin. And he chose to rebel against God. And then God cursed him as a result. And he's eternally doomed. And he's a supernatural being as an angel. But he's a fallen, dark angel. There's absolutely nothing good about Satan whatsoever. He's beyond uh, salvaging. He won't be saved. There's no good virtues whatsoever. Satan is just 100% corrupt and evil to the core. His very essence and very being. And he's hell-bent on one thing, and that is defying God, tempting humanity, seeking death and destruction of humanity, and, and really dragging as many people as he can down to hell. He knows he's going to hell. The Hell was created for the devil and his angels, and the devil knows that. So he's powerful. He is invisible. Uh, he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's subject to God. God's got him on a leash. He can't do anything without the permission of God. Everything he does is somehow within the plan and managed by God. That's our comfort, but he does real devastation. And so we saw how he's a deceiver by name. That's one of his names, by the way, the deceiver. So he deceived. So he was a good angel, rebelled, was cursed, was allowed some kind of domain and influence in the world in concert with God's plan and was allowed for some reason to go inside of a snake and to tempt Eve because that fit into God's big plan. And he successfully deceived Eve. She disobeyed. She sinned. Satan, mission accomplished, at least on that ploy. And Satan has been around for the last 6,000 years plaguing people and deceiving people ever since. And he's alive and well today. Satan is, even though you can't see him and we probably rarely think about him We should think about Him more often than we do and pray against Him. Jesus said, as you pray every day, our Father who art in heaven, pray against the evil one, says the Gospel of Luke. 1 Peter 5, 8 says this about Satan and reminding Christians, be of, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit. Be of, wake up! Pay attention! Get your head up and your eyes up, spiritually speaking. Don't fall asleep. That's what it means. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Are you ready, spiritually speaking? Are you paying attention? Are you discerning? Are you thinking of all the possible variables involved that affect your life, that affect reality? One of those is satanic. When's the last time you thought about that? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, your enemy. Your, that's a personal uh, terminology. Your enemy. Maybe you're one of those people that just wants to be liked by everybody. And actually, it bothers you if people don't like you. That actually kind of bothers me. But anyway, you got a problem here because if some people naively think, well, I don't have any enemies, well then, okay, then you're either not a Christian or you're an ignorant Christian or you're not being a realist or you need to be reminded of this Bible verse because if you're a Christian, your enemy, the devil. So you do have an enemy. As a matter of fact, when you became a Christian, you inherited at least four different enemies. Sin, the world, death, the devil. So he tells Christians, be of sober spirit, wake up, be on the alert. Your adversary, your personal enemy, the devil who is real, 
prowls around, present tense, continuing ongoing. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's a supernatural being. Prowls around like a roaring lion, a vicious, hungry, destructive lion. He only has one thing in mind, and that is destruction. Seeking someone to devour. Who does he want to devour? He wants to devour believers. He wants to devour humans. He wants to devour the church. He wants to cause division in the church. Ongoing, continual. Uh, look at um, Jesus in uh, John chapter 8. Just great reminder about the reality of the devil and how his destructive behavior employees started actually in Genesis. Jesus believed Genesis was literal, so he makes reference to Genesis. He didn't quote, he didn't say this is Genesis, but it's what he's talking about. So Jesus is teaching. He's publicly being accosted by the naysayers who are the religious Pharisees and Sadducees trying to make Jesus look foolish. They take Him to task. Jesus said He was the great I Am. They were incensed by that and accused Him of blasphemy. And they don't believe Him. They reject His message. And so Jesus rebukes them for their unbelief. John chapter 8. So there's this, bub- this, this is a public dialogue going on of a debate. Jesus is arguing with His enemies. Publicly rebuking them. Setting the record straight. Humiliating them with the truth. That's what he's doing. And they're pretty nasty. So, he, boy, he just, gets, he just cuts to the chase. This isn't just a personal insult to embarrass them. This is, a real, this is a true spiritual assessment and diagnosis of where they were at spiritually. Here they thought they were the most religious people on earth. The Pharisees. Do you know what that means? The Pharisees? That means the pure ones. That's what it means. We are the elite, pure religious ones. And Jesus points His finger in their face. Verse 44 of John 8, and He says, You are of your father, the devil. Wow, what a way to end a debate. There is no retort to that. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father, the devil... Well, what are his desires? Destruction. He, he goes on. What are the desires of the devil? He was a murderer from the beginning. Uh, and he does not stand in the truth. So he doesn't want truth. He doesn't want life. He wants destruction. He wants murder. Uh, he does not stand in the truth uh, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he lies. He speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. That comes right out of Genesis chapter 3. Those are the inspired words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reality that Satan is roaming the earth, seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 12.9, I put it down there in your notes. The ancient serpent, this is a reference that John makes, and he tells us who Satan is. Well, Satan is the ancient serpent, that's from Genesis, who is called the devil and Satan. So he's the deceiver and the adversary. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And all he does is spend all of his time taunting believers before the throne of God. The rest of the passage says, I didn't write it down, but in Revelation 12.9, going on to Revelation 12.10, Satan spends full time before God the Father talking about you and me behind our backs. Doesn't that irritate you? That annoys me to no end. He is a gossip and he is slandering our name to God the Father continually. That's what Revelation 12.10 is talking about. He categorize, he's the categorizer. He categorizes us. He puts us in little boxes that are totally illegitimate. That's Satan. 
and we need to be saved from Satan, the works of Satan, the ploys of Satan, the, his attacks. We are vulnerable to him still. But so I want to close this point with this passage, Hebrews chapter 2 says this. If I were to ask you, why did Jesus come into the world? Well, there's several reasons you can give, and one explicit answer is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners from the devil. Because that's what Hebrews chapter 2 says. Uh, so I'll just read it to you, 14 and 15. Uh, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we, it's talking about us as humans who believe in Christ, He Himself, Jesus, the God, eternal God, also partook of the same nature. He became a man, the God-man, for a specific purpose. What was that purpose? That through death, His substitutionary death, He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil. See? Why did Jesus come, live a perfect life, die on the cross, rise from the dead? One of the main reasons was is to render the devil powerless and to conquer death. Verse 15, and so that Jesus might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Why do we need Christmas? Because we need a Savior to save us from the devil and his deception. Let's go on to number four. Why do we need Christmas? Because we need a Savior to save us from our debilitation I call it humanity's personal debilitation or we need somebody to save us from our absolute total inability or another way to state it we need a savior to save us from our total depravity so this is kind of point two to the first point we need to be saved from our personal sin but we also need to be saved from our absolute total inability as sinners because a doctrine in the Bible taught throughout the entire Bible is the doctrine of total depravity. John Calvin in the 1500s did not make this doctrine up. Because it is one of the five points of Calvinism. He did not make it up. God made it up. It's in the Bible. It's specifically stated in Genesis 6-5 in the very beginning and is explained and illustrated all throughout the entire Bible. Total depravity. We are born with a sin nature. We are born sinners. We're born separated from God. We are born needing salvation. But we are also born totally depraved. What does total depravity mean? And that's what I mean by we need to be saved from our personal debilitation. What I meant by that is our utter inability to save ourselves. We can't save ourselves because of our total depravity, our total inability. And when I say that we... We cannot save ourselves. I am actually saying the exact opposite of what every religion in the world other than Christianity believes. I don't, every religion, every human philosophy says the same thing. If you just cut it all down in its most simplistic, distilled realities and doctrines, Christianity teaches that only God can save because humans can't save themselves. And every other worldview, philosophy, and religion teaches that humans can save themselves either by their good works, pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps, or whatever it is. Doing good deeds. And the Bible says, no, that is totally impossible. Can't do it. Because we are totally depraved. And by total depravity, I mean uh, what I don't mean. Total depravity doesn't say that we are all as evil as we could possibly be. Because we're not. Because of... God's goodness, His common grace, His mercy, His love for humanity in general. The fact that we were made in the image of God, that we have a conscience, that we have the law written on our hearts, the, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit in the world. There are all these things restraining 
our sin so that we are not all as evil as we could possibly be. Because everybody would be dead if we were doing everything as evil as we could possibly do. So God in His grace, through common grace, does a lot of restraining of the sin that we could be doing. So total depravity doesn't mean we're all as evil as we could possibly be. What it does mean is that every facet of our human being has been, of our very human nature has been affected, tainted, distorted, perverted by sin and by our sin nature. Every facet about us. Meaning, uh, as a human being, I'm a volitional being. I can make choices, but because I'm a sinner, my choices many times are sinful. I'm an emotional being. My emotions have been affected, tainted, twisted by the sin. I'm a rational being. My ability to think apart from God has been affected and tainted by sin. I'm a physical being. Physically, I have been cursed as a result of the of sin and the fall. So everything that makes me human has been tainted or affected by sin. So there's nothing good inherently in me whatsoever apart from God. Everything has been poisoned to one degree to another by sin. That's total depravity. And part of this total depravity is I am also a spiritual being. And because of my sin, I have been separated from God. And when I'm born into this world, I am born spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians 2 says. Every human being is born into this world spiritually dead. In other words, we don't personally know our Creator the way we should. We're actually an enemy of God. And that's why Jesus said in John 3 to adults, you must be born again. What He meant was you must be born again spiritually speaking because you were born spiritually dead. And Ephesians 2.1 says, remember before you became a Christian, you were born spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. And the definition of something that is dead is something that can't respond to an external stimulus. We can't respond properly to God as spiritual beings because we are spiritually dead and we were born that way. And somebody who is dead can't revive themselves. Somebody who's dead can't save themselves inherently. And that's why, and that's why I refer to debilitation, utter inability to save ourselves. Because we are spiritually dead, we need somebody outside of ourselves to save us and to rescue us. And total depravity makes it totally impossible for anybody to save themselves. And so the world's religions that say they can earn God's favor, they can please the Creator, they can appease the Creator of the universe because of their faults by doing good deeds, that is wrong, that is unbiblical. It doesn't please God. Titus chapter 3 says, if you're saved, you're saved by God's grace and mercy, not because of the works you have done in righteousness. And Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9 says the same thing. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, right? By God's grace, He initiated it. It was through faith in Jesus Christ and the Gospel. If you did get saved, it was not a result of human works. So we are not saved by human works. So I don't care what the philosophy is or other religion. Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, New Ageism, and on and on and all the isms. Islam, etc., etc. It is all trying to please God, earn God's favor, win your way to heaven through human works. Which is the very antithesis of the biblical message. We need somebody outside of ourselves to save ourselves. Listen to this verse in Jeremiah 13, 23, speaking to our total inability. And by the way, I put Genesis 6, 5 there, which says, God looked down from heaven after the curse, after the fall, the spread of sin, He diagnosed the state of 
the human heart and he said the wickedness of man or the wickedness of humanity was great on planet earth. We could say that about us today. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, that is an amazing statement if you examine it phrase by phrase and word by word. This is a diagnosis of every single one of us before we became a Christian. Before I became a Christian, I was evil. I was wicked. My intents and thoughts were evil. Not only were they evil, they were only evil. And not only were they only evil, they were only evil continually. So I have nothing to offer. I can't save myself. I can't change myself. Which brings me to Jeremiah in your Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 13.23, which also is a passage that informs this doctrine of total inability, debilitation. Humans cannot save themselves. They need a Savior. They need a Christmas. They need Jesus the God-man with the good news who's the only one that can save dead sinners out of their spiritual misery. And Jeremiah the prophet asked this rhetorical question. Can the Ethiopian in this day, the likelihood is that Ethiopian were black people. Moses married an Ethiopian woman. She was a black woman. Moses was Jewish. He was dark-skinned. His wife was black-skinned. And Aaron and Miriam were prejudiced towards their sister-in-law because of her black skin. So he's talking about black-skinned people here. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Well, the answer is no. You can't change yourself. Things that are inherent to you, you can't change. We are inherently sinners. We can't save ourselves. We can't change that. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also, then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. In other words, sinner, you can't save yourself. And you can't just all of a sudden by sheer willpower want to do something good that is truly good in the eyes of God. It cannot be done. Utter debilitation. We need a Savior who can save us from ourselves. Let's go on to number five, the last one. Why do we need Christmas? Why do we need a blessed Savior? We need somebody to save us from God's wrath. Notice the first four had to do with other things like Satan, sin, ourself, or whatever, these things that are inherently bad. And then number five, wow. You mean we need to be saved from God? Yeah, we do. Sinners need to be saved from God, the Father. It's an amazing concept. So we need Christmas because we need a Savior, Jesus. And Jesus uh, designed to come and save sinners from God the Father. Specifically, to save us from God's divine damnation. Specifically, to save us from God's wrath. Romans 1.18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. That's present tense, by the way, in the Greek text, and this is literally what it means. The wrath of God is right now, currently, in an ongoing fashion, being revealed and poured down from heaven. Continually. It's not, uh, are we going to be, is America going to be subjected to the wrath of God someday because of, no, the, the, America is presently being subjected to the wrath of God and every other sin is being subjected currently to the wrath of God. It's an ongoing thing. God is pouring out His wrath every single day. Psalm chapter 5, Romans 1.18. The wrath of God, by the way, the wrath of God, that is the anger of God that is, flows out of His holiness and His justice. It is perfect wrath. It is perfect anger. It is deserved wrath. It is not like human wrath. God never sins. He doesn't sin when He gets angry. He doesn't sin when He's in wrath. He doesn't sin when He judges. He is holy, righteous, perfect every time He judges and vents His wrath because God is perfect. So His wrath is perfect. It is deserved. It is appropriate. Romans 1.18, The wrath of God is being poured out from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
And we need to be, and if you're a sinner and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not a Christian and you have rejected the gospel, you are subject to God's ongoing wrath. And there's just going to be this cloud of wrath following you all your days on earth. Whether you realize it or not, whether you resist it or not, it, it is hounding you constantly. This is clear. This, look at John chapter 3. Possibly the words of Jesus Himself in John 3 at the end of the chapter. And here's an example of the wrath of God being poured out on unbelievers all the time and continually for rejecting the Gospel, rejecting Jesus Christ, rejecting the Savior, not fessing up to their sin, not asking for God's forgiveness, not wanting to get their life right. Uh, Verse 36 of John 3 says, He who believes in the Son, he who believes in Jesus Christ, he who believes in Jesus Christ for who Jesus Christ really is and who He said He was. He is the God-man. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. And this means believing in Jesus for who He is and what He came to do and everything He said about humanity and who He is. That we should acknowledge that we are sinners. We should repent of our sin. We should throw ourselves uh, to a God of mercy and plead for forgiveness and believe in Jesus Christ, who He was, that He died for sin, that He rose again from the dead, that He reigns on high, that we deserve to bow the knee to Him and worship Him accordingly. That's what that means. The one who believes in the Son. If you believe that, you have eternal life, present tense, right now. What is eternal life? Total forgiveness of sin. Immediate adoption spiritually into the family of God. You're a child of God and no longer a child of Satan. So you have total forgiveness and grace in this life. And then you have eternal life as well. That when you die and leave this life, immediately you end up in the presence of God in glory in heaven forever. So eternal life starts in this life and it starts the moment you trust in Christ. And it lasts forever and you can't earn it you don't deserve it i didn't deserve it you can't work for it it is simply believing in the truth that god has revealed in his glorious gospel about jesus christ he who believes in the son has eternal life if you know jesus christ this morning personally you have eternal life what greater christmas present is there than that there isn't And that's what Christmas is all about. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Here's the bad news. But the one who does not obey the Son, or literally the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ, the antithesis, will not see life. You won't get eternal life. You won't go to heaven. You will go to hell, and your hell actually starts in this life. Because of the last part of the verse. Not only will you not see life in the future, but the wrath right now, the wrath of God abides or rests or weighs down on you. I did not make this up. These are the very words of Jesus Christ Himself. And now you know why the Pharisees and the Sadducees all throughout the Gospel of John, they got infuriated with Jesus every time He opened His mouth because He said things like this and they didn't want to hear. And they picked up stones to stone Him and they went after Him to strangle Him and they tried to throw Him off the cliff And every time He spoke. But He was speaking truth and He came not just to condemn and punish, He came to rescue and save. That's the good news. He came to rescue and save. Those of you who believe this and know Jesus have been rescued and saved. And if you've believed in the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God no longer abides on you. God has removed His wrath and all His blessings rain down on you. His care for you rains down. You are under the umbrella and the almighty, eternal, protective, loving arms of God the Father and Jesus Christ wherever you go. Even specific angels surrounding you according to the Psalms. Wherever you go. Isn't that a glorious reality? 
And if you crash when you're driving home on the highway in the rain and you die, you go to heaven. And I don't think it's raining there. But anyway, that is part of the glorious promise of being saved from the ongoing wrath of God. And the wrath of God starts in this life and you can be saved from it in this life and you'll be saved eternally from it in the next life. So, boy, five great realities to answer that question. Why do we need Christmas and what's special about it? We need Christmas because we need a Savior. And we need a supernatural Savior, a God-man like Jesus Christ. And we need a Savior at Christmas to save us from the fall and our personal sin, the curse and the world in which we live, to save us from the devil as he continues to hound us and deceive us and try to destroy us. We need to be saved from our own inability to save ourselves. And we need to be saved from God's holy wrath. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Where it says He came to seek and to save those who were lost. That's why He was born. I want to close with this. You know, we hear this and we understand it. And man, yeah, this makes sense. Especially if you're a Christian. Yeah, this makes sense. This resonates with my soul. The Spirit of God, who's my teacher, confirms this in my heart as true. Boy, if, if I could just share this with my unsaved family, my unsaved neighbors, and my unsaved friends, certainly if they heard this, they would, they would want to be saved and become a Christian. I'm sure they don't want the wrath of God abiding on them. So all they have to do is hear the truth, right? You just tell people the truth and boom, they're going to believe it and be saved. It's, it's that simple. Not... I think about being a Christian for 25 years and all the people that I've told, starting with my own immediate family, and people have heard this truth and they heard it in detail. They even understood it. Some even actually agreed that it was true and still defied it and did not believe and didn't want anything to do with it and are living separated from God as a result. It's a good reminder. It's, it's not up to us, is it? If this is a supernatural work and transaction that needs to be happening in every individual's soul with the grace and the mercy of God and the work of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit works with the Gospel on people's hearts and softens their heart sensitizes their conscience, removes sinful blindness, and removes satanic blindness that 2 Corinthians 4 says is blinding people from the Gospel so that they cannot believe. We can't manipulate people into heaven. It has to be, in the end, the supernatural, gracious, sovereign work of God. Amen? And I was reminded of that in a new way this week. Uh, I have a, a, a buddy I was talking to this week Chatting, I should say. Uh, and he knows Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, he does. Shaquille O'Neal, for those of you who don't know, he's a football player. And No, I'm just kidding. Uh, he's a basketball player. One of the greatest. Shaq Daddy. Uh, played for the Lakers and he's on ESPN. And uh, So we were chatting this week and he said he's, he's known Shaquille O'Neal for 11 years. He went to the Masters College and was a major, my, the guy I was talking to, where I went to the Master's College, and he was a major in Bible, and I was a major in Bible, but we didn't go at the same time. He came after I did. But we were chatting this week, and he was telling me that he knew, he's known Shaq for 11 years. And I was watching, uh, no, it was TNT NBA basketball this week, and after the game, uh, there's Shaq and all those other guys, and they're saying, happy birthday to so-and-so, and this was the guy that I knew, and I'm like, no way. So... I sent him an email and a text. I said, dude, uh, Shaq Daddy's talking about you. And he says, yeah, I know. It's my birthday today. And he, he said he's known Shaq for 11 years. And he's a pastor's son, uh, this guy I was talking to. And, and so when he told me he knew Shaq very well for 11 years, I said, 
well, where's he at? Where's Shaq at? Well, no, at first I said, have you ever shared the gospel with him? And where's he at spiritually? And he said, uh, Shaq has heard the gospel. Pretty much ad infinitum. Heard it. Understands it. Knows the implications. And as lost as can be. But I'm still committed to being his friend. Then I said, Amen. So I just assured him. You need to, you've already done your duty. You planted the seed of the gospel. All we need to do now is pray. So we're going to be committed to praying for the seed of the gospel that's already invaded Shaq's mind, his conscience, his heart, and that it will hound him, convict him, remove the satanic and sinful blindness that he might be saved. And he said, I really appreciate that. So I wanted to tell you as a church, keep praying for Shaq Daddy. That he might, because he's heard all this. He knows this. And now he needs to be brought to his knees by a gracious God. Amen? And that's the meaning of Christmas. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank You for uh, the church which in this age is Your gift. Your gift to humanity, Your precious bride. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your ultimate mission was to be a saving God. A holy God, but a saving God. Merciful, loving. You, you loved Your creation. Humbled Yourself. Came down here. Became the God-man. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your perfect life. Thank You for willingly, deliberately going to the cross to be subjected to that humiliation. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath of God the Father that was intended for us as sinners. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for rising Yourself from the dead for ascending into heaven, for reigning on high, for being in control of all things, for being the Lord of the universe, and for being our personal Savior for those of us who know You because of Your glorious Gospel. We thank You so much for the true meaning of Christmas. And God, continue through Your Holy Spirit to remind us, to prompt us, to make us bold and courageous to share the seeds of this great news wherever we go and that You would bless it as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.